This is Paul Herman with your local news, coming to you live from the WRT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Republican Party of Wisconsin held their annual convention in Middleton over the weekend, just miles away from Madison, the proclaimed swamp some attendees are campaigning to drain. It was a litmus test at the Marriott Convention Hall as the Republican race to unseat Tony Evers kicks into high gear. Frontrunner candidate Rebecca Clayfish came close to gaining the votes needed to grab her party's nomination. Clayfish won the support of a majority of delegates, but failed to reach the 60% threshold needed to do so. Clayfish, though, declared victory. That means no Republican candidate can start tapping into the Republican Party's resources prior to the August 9th primary. Meanwhile, at the convention, more than a third of the 1,500 delegates on Saturday voted to approve a resolution to remove Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Voss was also reportedly booed by some after pointing out that the 2020 election, re election results can't be decertified. The filing deadline for candidates to appear on the primary ballot is coming up on June 1st. In a historic vote for the U.S. video game industry, 28 quality assurance testers at Raven Software in Middleton won their bid for a union this afternoon. Raven Software, a subsidiary of Activision Blizzard, works on the top-grossing Call of Duty video game franchise. Quality assurance testers, who check video games for bugs, formed the Game Workers Alliance after a strike in December of 2021. The vote passed today with 19 out of 22 votes and two challenged ballots. This was despite allegations of union busting against workers. Just earlier today, the National Labor Relations Board accused Activision Blizzard of illegally threatening staff and their collective action rights with a strict social media policy. And workers at Raven Software say management have pressured against the union vote at company meetings and reorganized staff in order to make unionizing harder. The vote made history as the first union at a AAA video game studio in the U.S., and only the second formal union in the U.S. video game industry. Federal law prohibits concealed carry for people convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence. But last Friday, the state's high court ruled that's, that that's not the same as conviction of disorderly conduct. And in, its, and in a decision handed down by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, ruled that people with disorderly conduct conviction are not disqualified from getting a permit to carry firearms, knives, or stun guns as concealed weapons. The state's high court announced the unanimous decision last Friday, reports the Associated Press. In a separate concurrence, Justice Jill Karofsky called on legislators to ban domestic abusers from carrying concealed weapons, calling it a, quote, dangerous loophole. The case was prompted by a Green Bay man with a dis disorderly conduct conviction. He argued that because he was not convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence, federal restrictions on his concealed carry rights did not apply. Four Madisonians have submitted their applications to fill a vacancy for the 20th Alderman Manic District on the Madison Common Council. That vacancy was left by the early departure of T District 20 Alder Christian Alburas, whose, res whose resignation from the council took effect last Friday at noon. The four applicants included a mentor at a local nature connection program and stay-at-home stay dad, an IT manager for an insurance company, a health records administrator, 
and an area substitute teacher and former alder. The interim alder is expected to be appointed in two weeks during the city council meeting. That person will serve for the remainder of the term until next spring. No applicant said they were definitively planning to run for a full term. Alboros is the third elder this year to resign early. He tells Ismith's newspaper that he's planning to move out of his district. And now, on to today's top stories. The month of May will soon be over. And with it, so will No Mo May, a month-long trend in some communities in which homeowners refrain from mowing their lawn. As WRT reporter Reed Kamai reports, the aim is to help bees and other pollinators emerge in the early months of warmer weather. If you've walked past a front lawn lately and noticed that the grass seems to have grown out of control, it might not be due to the residents' laziness. They might just be participating in No Mow May. It's a movement intended to help with the growth of early flowering grasses and along with it, pollination. This observance began in Appleton a few years ago, and this year it's happening throughout Dane County. Some municipalities have even paused mowing ordinances so that residents can take part. Christelle Guedot is an associate professor of entomology at UW-Madison. She says that while dandelions and other flowers that naturally grow among grass can be undesirable, bees depend on that for their food. You know, people are not excited about having them, but by not mowing, you're leaving flowers at a critical time where bees are coming out um, and, and are in need of food when there's not that much out there. So if everybody was to mow, and all those grassy areas were to mow, be mowed, then you could imagine it as a little bit of a desert for, um, for that time of the year. Madison is among the towns and cities participating, although with a slightly different approach, low mow may. The city eased mowing requirements down to once every two weeks. Stacy Reese, the sustainability program coordinator for the city of Madison, says this decision was made with input from residents and various city departments. Um, so everyone got to basically kind of offer suggestions around how the city of Madison can uh, promote pollinator populations while also staying within our general ordinances around uh, heights of, uh, of grass, um, as well as thinking about some of the other uh, unintended consequences or considerations with having, you know, grass grow to a really high length and then coming to back around to, to chop it down, which could be damaging to, to the grass overall. Reese adds that residents can help pollinators in a variety of ways. Um, we also wanted to promote other ways uh, that folks can engage if they do want to mow their lawn uh, rigorously throughout the month, that they can think about things like buffer zones, uh, or natural tree plantings or other sorts of conservation efforts. Verona suspended its mowing ordinance for the month of May so that residents could participate in No Mow May. That's largely due to the efforts of Verona alder Kate Cronin, who pushed for the town to participate. I mean, about one third of the food that Americans eat is dependent on pollinators, and they have been under siege in the last, you know, decades um, because they have been exposed to herbicides and pesticides that have interrupted their breeding cycles um, and negatively impacted their health. According to the USDA, bees alone add $15 billion in crop value each year. PJ Leash is the director of the Insect Diagnostic Lab at UW-Madison and has earned the nickname the Bug Guy. 
Leash says plant diversity is also crucial to maintaining pollinators. Because if you think about Wisconsin pollinators, uh, folks think of bees first and foremost. We actually have close to 500 or so different species of bees. And each bee species differs in terms of the types of flowers and plants it likes to go to. Some may be kind of broad generalists that can go to a wide range of flowers. Other ones might like a specific plant family or or plant genus. And so if we have a greater diversity of plants blooming around us, we're going to provide a greater diversity of food. Leash and the others I spoke to also called on residents to avoid the use of pesticides so that pollinators can enjoy the nectar and other nutrients the plants they feed off have to offer. Last year, two state lawmakers introduced a package to limit the use of certain pesticides in protected wildlife areas. The bill, which stalled in committee, would also have allowed local governments to regulate the use of certain pesticides. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. A kind of cybercrime called ransomware has exploded. Producer Heron Splinter looked into what cities and businesses are doing. The world has become a web of wires, or more accurately, fiber optic cables. We have welcomed computers into every part of our lives. They are used to manage, track, and process data in everything from aviation to zoology. They are developed by an international community of software developers who create the tools that we use every day. Not all of these developers are benevolent, however, and our world wide web of fiber makes it possible for these dangerous developers to devastate computer systems on the other side of the earth. You might have recently become aware of the threat of computer-based attack from the recent outpouring of advice because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The threats and impacts of a cyber attack are real and are now carefully considered in military arenas. But the nation versus nation cyber clashes are not the most common. It's far more likely that organized crime will have an effect on your life. And today, this will most often come in a form called ransomware. Ransomware is a style of cyber attack that aims to extort someone out of money by locking their data up and demanding payment. Businesses of all kinds can be affected, along with cities, municipalities, governments, celebrities, and nonprofits. By encrypting the data of these organizations, hackers demand ransom payments anywhere from a few thousand to millions of dollars. In recent years, ransom demands have skyrocketed. For how that might impact the city of Madison, I reached out to Keytron Evans. He's the principal security researcher at InfoSec. InfoSec provides cybersecurity training and crisis management nationwide. The danger for Madison and the businesses in Madison and the city of Madison five years ago was much less than it is today. And I think a large part of that's driven by the fact that, number one, we've had a lot more publicity towards ransomware. And the reason for that is primarily because of the fact that we've had record numbers of the amount of ransom money that's paid out. Ransomware can affect any kind of organization. On Saturday, WGN reported that almost 50,000 students in Chicago public schools had their personal information targeted by a ransomware attack. Ransomware attacks can affect cities as well. A recent and famous example can be found in Atlanta, Georgia. In 2018, nearly the entire city's computer systems were interrupted because of ransomware. Atlanta was told to pay a ransom of $51,000, but decided not to. Today, it's estimated that the city has paid around $3 million in repair and consulting costs. A prominent case in government and industry was the Colonial Pipeline. 
The pipeline was shut down by its operators shortly after a demand for 4.4 million was seen on a computer close to the pipeline control systems. The Russian hackers also stole 100 gigabytes worth of data, which it threatened to release if the ransom was not paid. These breaches and ransoms keep increasing because the cyber criminal organization watches their targets closely. In our conversation, Keytron Evans said that ransomware organizations spend about 80% of their time researching their targets. The landscape of cyber attacks can feel daunting. On top of that, there are now laws in place that require businesses to disclose whether they have been attacked. But this depends on what kind of business you are in and what kind of data is breached in an attack. Sarah Sargent is a privacy and cybersecurity attorney at the Madison law firm Godfrey & Kahn. They write privacy policies help companies deal with legal requirements around data, and also help deal with cyber attacks. Depending on the wording of the state, if your personal information is accessed or acquired, acquired meaning like stolen, then the company has to tell the individual. Um, and that only applies to certain types of personal information, like your driver's license, your social security number, um, in some states, uh, your um, username and password um, or your date of birth. Um, so it's typically information that somebody could use to get into an account or that they could use to uh, commit identity theft or fraud. Another part of the new cybersecurity landscape is insurance. As I spoke to industry professionals, they continually recommended it. Though. With the recent escalation of ransom demand sums and volumes, the cyber insurance marketplace is difficult to navigate. I spoke to Jim Blair. He's a managing partner of Aberdeen Consulting, a managed IT service. And we look at what's happening in the insurance industry. Every one of these applications and forms are completely different. They have different expectations for the business. There's not a lot of continuity from one insurance company to another company, what they're looking for. And you know, it's they're they're putting they're putting pressure on businesses to make their their stuff more secure. And because the insurance company has been burned, you know, the last two years more has been paid out in claims by the two largest insurers for cyber risk than what they collected in premiums. And that's not good math for the insurance companies. So basically, you know, instead of going to like step one, step two, step three for incremental you know, improvements to the security of, of those businesses they insure, they basically have gone to zero to 60. So ransomware attacks are more frequent. Businesses may have legal requirements to disclose attacks. Insurance against attacks is difficult to buy because of the inconsistent and high requirements. Buckley Brinkman is the executive director and chief executive officer for the Wisconsin Center of Manufacturing and Productivity. His organization supports small manufacturers to grow and compete with large corporations. He recently took a poll on business cybersecurity and got some interesting results. We went out and polled 400 manufacturers last fall, and we found that they're really overconfident. Uh, somewhere in the 80% range said, uh, we, are, we are confident that we're going to, that we are cyber secure. Uh, it was really interesting when we looked at that by people who had been breached and people who hadn't. That number fell to somewhere in the 50% range. And so we just see that people aren't taking the action that they, that they really need to take from this. Brinkman also had this to say. Statistics show that if you're actually breached, 
40 to 50% of those companies aren't in existence two years from now. I was curious how the city of Madison deals with cyber threats, where the impact of service disruptions can impact people more severely. The IT department of Madison supports or manages IT for every department in Madison. Tim Bond is the assistant director of the Office of Cybersecurity. He said that the city takes measures to protect itself from cyber threats, but wouldn't give specifics. City employees are currently trained only through a cybersecurity newsletter, but IT has some plans to expand. And we are instituting uh, a training, an annual training program that all city staff will have to go through um, once a year to be refreshed and updated on, on best practices. Bowen would not tell me if Madison has ever suffered a ransomware attack. The sources that I spoke to agreed on one message. Just like any big problem, taking cybersecurity one step at a time is the way to go. The goal is to make it hard for hackers to infiltrate, limit the damage if they do, and repair quickly afterwards. For WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. It's now 6.23 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new article from ProPublica delves into one strand of the 2020 election conspiracy in Wisconsin. It began as a complaint to the election board from one man in the southern part of the state. WRT producer Heron Splinter has more. I'm on the line with Megan O'Matz, a reporter covering Wisconsin at nonprofit investigative news outlet ProPublica. She's out today with a new article about Jay Stone a hypnotherapist who played a key role in fueling conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. And she joins me now. Megan, thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having me. So you start and end your article at a small gathering in Kenosha from the hot government, quote unquote, that stands for open, honest and transparent. What'd you hear there? Oh, I did. Absolutely. And I went to hear Jay Stone speak. He's running for state Senate, and he has a very interesting background because he he was a consultant for Michael Gableman's investigation of the 2020 election. You'll know that the um, Speaker of the House appointed Mr. Gableman to conduct a review of the 2020 election, and that's ongoing. So when I was looking through some invoices, I saw that there was a payment to this man named Jay Stone as a consultant, and I didn't know who Jay Stone was. So separately, I was looking at complaints with the Wisconsin Elections Commission, and I noticed an August 2020 complaint from a Jay Stone. So I made that connection, and then that took me down the road to looking at who exactly is Jay Stone and what was he doing in Mr. Gableman's review of the 2020 election. Who exactly is Jay Stone? There's so many millions of people that still believe that the election in 2020 was stolen, if you will. And it's so interesting to me to find out why that is. Who are the people that don't have faith in our election system and why? So Mr. Stone is a retiree from Pleasant Prairie. He is a retired hypnotherapist. He's a fascinating man if you sit down and speak with him and you learn about how he came to distrust Democrats in particular, he has some valid reasons in that he grew up the son of an alderman in Chicago. And if you'll remember in the Daly uh, administration in those years, there was a lot of political patronage going on. And Jay, Jay witnessed that firsthand. So it led him to distrust um, the, the, the Democratic Party. And I think he brought a lot of that 
with him as he witnessed the 2020 election. I see. It was his father, right? Yes, his father was in a longtime alderman in Chicago named Bernie Stone. And um, Jay at one point ran for alderman as well in Chicago, and he lost. His father didn't endorse him even. Um, but Jay found that um, the party bosses ordered um, city workers to go out and campaign against him in the city of Chicago. This was about 2003. And he eventually filed a, um, a claim in federal court, and he won $75,000. So this was um, a, a corrupt practice back in, in the days in Chicago where city workers would go out and campaign because they wanted to protect the sitting aldermen. And Jay is very much in favor of um, independence and all. You might say, though, that... Um, where maybe his his sentiments are falling far short, however, is in his consideration of the election grants that were paid out in Wisconsin in the 2020 election. So let's turn to those election grants. You're talking about in 2020, Madison and four other cities received an election grant from the Center of Tech and Civic Life. That money went toward funding an election in a pandemic, PPE and increased wages for poll workers, absentee ballot drop boxes, and so on. But Stone and others say that these grants were politically calculated, and there's a connection with Zuckerberg there. Why? Yes, exactly. When Jay first got wind of these grants, now that's going back again to July 2020, as you said, if you remember, that was the scariest time in the pandemic because we didn't have a vaccine. We were, you know, a lot of us were still stuck at home. Um, we couldn't go out to work and all. And there was a lot of concern about how are we going to have safe elections, especially in cities which are densely populated, right? If you're going to go to the polls, how are you going to stay six feet apart and so on? So this entity, Center for Tech and Civic Life, stepped in and they offered $6 million in grants to Wisconsin's five largest cities um, to help them uh, do exactly that, prepare for the election to make it safe, be able to maybe release more absentee ballots and process more absentee ballots or get more space in the actual polling places. Now, Jay took a look at that, though, and he saw it as an, an, a get-out-the-vote effort that is going to um, give the advantage to Democrats. Now, typically, get-out-the-vote get drives are the responsibility of candidates, right? You want to get your people out to the polls. Um, but it's also the purview of election officials to encourage everyone to vote. But Jay saw in this something improper. And I think when you really look at how far the concerns about these grants have gone and you trace it backwards, Jay Stone is the basically the initiator of this theory. He was the first one out, out of the gate in August 2020 to file formal complaint about this. And you might say that then Mr. Gableman and all the teams of lawyers working for him took that theory and basically ran with it, that these grants are somehow tainted or improper um, in that they were advantaging the Democrats in drawing more people in these Democratic cities to the polls. Do you think it's accurate to say that Stone is correct in the abstract? It's hard to imagine that these specific donations to important Wisconsin cities, like a, sw a swing state like Wisconsin is, 
that they weren't motivated by some partisan research? Well, this has been looked at extensively by numerous courts in Wisconsin and across um, the country, actually. And there's been no judge that has said that these grants were improper. In, in fact, quite the opposite. There's been judges that have said there is nothing wrong with these grants, that they were not partisan. Um, in fact, there was even a judge um, appointed by Trump that, that a uh, federal judge appointed by Trump that found no merit when uh, Donald Trump actually took this issue to court and he, he dismissed it. So, um, so, so no, I think that, you know, the election officials themselves will tell you that, you know, getting people to out to vote is um, one of the basic fundamentals of our democracy. We want people to vote, right? We want people to vote all over the state and all over the country. So, um, and eventually CTCL did give out grants to any election office that applied for it. So they did not ultimately deny anybody um, and they vociferously deny that they, they, you know, they had a political motive in giving out the grants. I'd like to hear a little bit more about Jay Stone. Uh, the bulk of your article is based on him. You mentioned he's a retired hypnotherapist and he's running for state senator. Yes, exactly. He's a retired hypnotherapist. And um, so he's, you know, he, t- he told me he's very, very um, proud of his um, profession. And you can see that he uh, he has told me that he has used it to help people address, um, you know, smoking um, addictions or uh, weight gain and that kind of thing. And um, according to him, he's he's helped many people with that. It's an unusual profession for sure, right? Um, and that's part of what I think make, makes him interesting, his background interesting. So you've talked with Jay Stone. How often? It's kind of unusual for someone in the GOP to speak with the media so freely. Yes, he very warmly talked to me a lot about his concerns about these grants and his background um, in Chicago and all the concerns he had about the Democratic machine in Chicago. But I think, again, it is important for us to look at where people are coming from when they are uh, refusing to believe that our election was legitimate, because that's the bedrock of our democracy. If we don't have faith in our elections, we're in a lot of trouble. And um, I just thought it was fascinating to look at where uh, this obscure retiree basically became the initiator of this uh, theory about these grants and how, um, you know, basically he went up against Mark Zuckerberg, who is one of the richest people in the country, and um, Mark Zuckerberg has now said that he will not be giving any more donations to election offices. Of course, the crisis of the pandemic is not the same anymore. And a dozen states have gone out there and now banned uh, private grants or election money um, to administrators. So um, you could say that, you know, this this obscure retiree has really impacted the operations of election offices. I can certainly see he was the small snowball that started this all in Wisconsin. That's an excellent way to put it, especially with the snowball that's being Wisconsin. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just finishing this off, the GOP convention was this weekend in Middleton, during which Robin Vaz was booed for saying he can't decertify the election. Do you know if Stone was there? Oh, that's a good question. I do not know. 
Um, I did not happen to go to the convention, but I do know that when Michael Gableman gave his report March 1st to the um, Elections Committee and the Assembly, he gave a very detailed presentation. I think it was almost two hours long of his findings, and um, half of his report dealt with the election grants. But sitting right behind uh, Mr. Gableman was Jay Stone. I've been on the line with Megan O'Matz, a reporter at ProPublica. Her new article, which came out today, is titled The Hypnotherapist and Failed Politician Who Helped Fuel the Never-Ending Hunt for Election Fraud in Wisconsin. You can read it online at ProPublica.org. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout foresees a lengthy debate over the jail in the week ahead. Bridging the Gap explores attractiveness of dating shows, and we review two new movies on the small screen. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. BBC News. The UN's World Food Programme has described the Russian blockade of Ukraine's ports as a declaration of war and global food security. Issuing the warning at the World Economic Forum in Davos, the organization's head said it could push millions of people into famine. The U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has said 20 countries have stepped forward to supply additional military support to Ukraine. He said he was particularly grateful to Denmark for promising to send Harpoon anti-ship missiles. Russian media are reporting that the Ukrainian soldiers who surrendered at the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol will face a trial in the same city. Denis Pushilin, the leader of the self-declared Donetsk People's Republic, said everyone who left the plant last week was being held in his territory. A group of British politicians have described the government's handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan last year as a catastrophic failure of intelligence, diplomacy and planning. In a report, the MPs said British soldiers and their Afghan allies were utterly let down by failures of leadership. More than 30 people are reported to be missing in the Nigerian state of Borno after being attacked by suspected militants. Inhabitants of the town of Ran were fired on by gunmen when they went into the bush to fetch firewood. The WHO doesn't believe the outbreak of monkeypox outside of Africa Africa requires mass vaccinations. A senior official said the primary measures were contact tracing and isolation. The British Prime Minister is facing renewed calls to resign after new pictures were published of him drinking at a gathering in Downing Street at a time when parties weren't allowed because of the pandemic. BBC News. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WRT. I'm your host, Paul Herman. Thanks for joining us. It's a busy week in local government. Here to talk about a special Dane County meeting about the jail project and a lengthy agenda for city elders is WRT's Dylan Brogan and Forward Lookout's Brenda Conkle. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. So still virtual, 
been saying that for two years, but <laughs> everything is still virtual unless we say otherwise. Uh, we'll start with Dane County and already in progress is the Personnel and Finance Committee. So they have a whole bunch of routine items as usual. Um, they have a little bit of funding for the Sheriff's Department for various projects, including um, some drug enforcement grants and bomb explosive breaching training. Um, they'll also be looking at establishing an independent investigation for Henry Vila Sioux. Been a, a, a source of contention between the county executive's office and the supervisors. Um, they're also going to be looking at purchasing some property for the Madison's Black Business Hub project. Um, so they have a whole bunch of routine items on there, plus those items that I think might be of interest. And also happening on Tuesday, we have, uh, is this a joint co- a meeting of the Public Works and Transportation Committee and the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee? It is. Yeah. Um, at 530, they're going to be meeting together, and they have also noticed that for a quorum of the county board, um, and that is because they will be discussing the jail project and the new jail financial memo that came out asking for yet another $10 million. Um, so this cost of this jail just keeps skyrocketing and uh, they will be discussing that. I think some of the county board supervisors are starting to lose their um, tolerance for continuing to just give out money for this project. So we'll see once if um, this new leadership at the county board level will have any impact on this discussion. Yeah, it feels like we were just here in March. Right, exactly. Yeah, and so now, and as predicted, it, we're back at it and $10 million more for probably a project that's reduced in scope. Exactly, hmm. exactly. And I think uh, I think there's some folks who might be willing to take a closer look at this and see if there might be some different options. And we'll move on to the city of Madison now. Uh, already in progress, it's the Landmarks Commission also meeting virtually. So they'll be uh, looking at some, at least one certificate of appropriateness. So is this just for some minor repairs of Breeze Stevens Field, it looks like? Yes. That a one couple looks of like them, some, yeah. Yeah, masonry and relocation of the South Gate. Um, they also have a project at uh, Spate Street, which is the demolition of a, of a porch. And then there's some projects on um, West Johnson. They're looking at state compliance review for that. Hmm, what does that um, I mean? That's related to the university. I don't know. I've never seen that on their agenda before. Um, so um, seems interesting. All right. We're going to check out what they have to be in compliance of. It's still old. <laughs> All right. Good. Uh, I'm just joking around here. Should we talk about the plan commission? Uh, that started at 530 a day and um, certainly plenty of projects and construction and all sorts of things happening around town. Yeah, um, a lot of times the items in the beginning of the agenda are not particular projects and a little bit boring. Okay. But this one is the acquisition of all the land for the East-West Bus Rapid uh, Transit Project. So if people are interested in that. That's which a might be like a, a foot of somebody's front lawn, right? <laughs> yeah, it's up to $4 million, though. So wow. it is, it's not a small chunk of change. Yeah. Um, they also have um, a bunch of uh, sort of routine items, but they are looking at repealing the protest petition um, that has caused some uh, concern among uh, some Who's of the protesting what? Um, a certain amount of neighbors and property yeah. owners can uh, protest um, a zoning decision that's made by the city council. Oh, and so yeah. they're looking at um, making that so they can't do that anymore. That was used on a couple projects like the Edgewater and some yeah. other uh, petitions 
then that requires that the council pass things by a two thirds vote and they're looking at making that a 50% vote or eliminating it altogether. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting debate about, yeah. you know, how race and other things play into this. Um, so well, and how much should uh, the neighborhood be able to decide these projects, right? Exactly. Like, we are short on time today. So let's just, uh, Go over the Common Council Executive Committee and the and the full Common Council, um, which is oh man, we're only getting to Tuesday today. But remember, forthlookat.com, yeah. there's lots going on. Uh, but uh, so you can, that's always a great resource to check it out, and we encourage you to do that. But the Common Council's Executive Committee has kind of a lengthy agenda, and so does um, the full body, which meets at six thirty. It's the longest agenda I've ever seen for the Common Council Executive Committee. They are they are doing quite a few different things. Um, they are looking at their chief of staff, um, also uh, Karen, who currently works in the um, council office, is going to be the next uh, yep. council chief of staff for five years. So that's a that's a big change for them. There's lots of other um, issues on the agenda about uh, filling vacancies um, and what that process is like, their harassment and discrimination policy, um, the final report from the president's work group on racial justice, anti-racism and equity, Plus some more items about changing the way the Common Council agenda is done and public comments during the Common Council meeting. So if you're interested in any of those issues, um, this is a lot of the work that came out of that TFOGS group yeah. and they're, they're finally getting to it. And many of those same items will again be on the Common Council agenda um, at 630. So um, they're going to make a recommendation and go right to the council. And yeah. it'll be all there's Christian Aburis and Arvina Martin's last meeting. And they, that that's a little bit, I mean, it'll be funny if they have to vote on sort of how um, to fill those vacancies in the future. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Um, I think Christian will not be in attendance. I think uh, because the person filling their seat has already been chosen, but Arvina will okay. still be at this meeting and is um, I believe uh, two more days, I think she has yep. on the council. <laughs> yeah. They'll be looking at the um, landmarks ordinance as well as looking at that protest petition that we talked about earlier. Um, there's a whole bunch of TID issues that are coming up. So um, closing a couple of TIDs um, and using some of that money for affordable housing, hmm. as well as uh, three different uh, changes to some TID plans. So if you're interested in TIDs and TIFs and all of that, you might want to pay attention. Um, they are also going to be um, looking at authorizing a contract with HNTB for the passenger rail study services. So that's the Amtrak type of oh, yeah. rail services. So there's lots going on in transportation all the time. You got to figure out what all the words mean, but this is a passenger rail study. All right. Uh, I encourage people to check out uh, just what's happening this week in local government because there's a lot in, you know, some uh, consequential but um, seemingly kind of small changes uh, to how the council operates. But, you know, all that really impacts public input and stuff. So that's why it's important to pay attention. It does because these changes get made when people aren't paying attention. Yes. And then when you really need it, it's not going to be there. Yes. So. Brenda Conkle, forwardlookout.com. Thank you so much for all your hard work and for helping us uh, know what's going on this week. All right. Thanks, Dylan. This coming Saturday marks the day in 1936 when 32,000 Renault workers started the occupation of their factory in Paris. It was a key event in the French general strike and the accords where the nation's workers gained the 40-hour work week, 
collective bargaining rights, and a host of other guarantees taken for granted today. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has details on this week's Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Saturday, May 28th, marks the day that 32,000 workers occupied the Renault plant in Paris. The year was 1936. Shortly thereafter, two million workers occupied factories and shops. The rebellion only stopped when employers and the government agreed to a settlement called the Matigyo Agreements, also known as the Magna Carta of French labor. The agreements included a 40-hour workweek, two weeks paid vacation, collective bargaining rights, the legal right to strike, wage increases of 7 to 15 percent, and other concessions. Background for the labor actions that led to this historic agreement was the Great Depression that affected France beginning in 1931. After the rise of the German Nazis in 1933, the French fascists launched an assault on Parliament on February 6, 1934. Fifteen people were killed and thousands injured in the battle. Although police won, the French government was forced to resign. The fascists were delighted. They thought they were on their way to power. But the French workers rose to defend their democratic rights a week later. The trade unions called for a general strike on February 12th, and the socialist and communist parties supported it. In Paris, 30,000 of the 31,000 postal workers stopped working. Transport stopped running. Building sites were empty. The Citrojo car plant shut down. Newspapers failed to appear. The same pattern played out in many provincial cities. Over 4.5 million workers came out on strike, and 1 million demonstrated. In Paris, the socialists and the communists marched separately to the Place de la Nation. The two parties had been at loggerheads since the 20s, so there were fears over conflict when the two merged. But, said one observer, after a silent brief moment of anguish, to the astonishment of the party and union leaders, this encounter triggered a delirious enthusiasm, an explosion of shouts of joy, applause, cries of unity, unity. This one-day general strike built key cooperation between the socialists and communists. The Popular Front was born, an alliance of working-class parties and a middle-class party, similar to liberal Dems, called the Radical Party. Its major goal was to take electoral power. The municipal elections of May 1935 showed a marked move to the left. Then came an even more impressive development, the enormous Bastille Day demonstrations in Paris on July 14, 1935. Called to defend democratic rights, bread for workers, work for the young, and world peace. Half a million people filled the streets. Between March and May 1936, 250,000 workers joined a unified labor federation made up of the old Socialist Party-aligned and the much larger Communist-aligned federation. May Day 1936 saw 120,000 workers in the Paris area stop work for the day. Renault was shut down for the first time in 20 years as 25,000 struck. On May 3rd, the Popular Front scored a massive electoral victory. The Socialists became the biggest single group in Parliament and the Communists won 72 seats. Then workers went on the offensive. Three separate airplane factory workers' strikes broke out within a week to demand the reinstatement of militants sacked for going to May Day demonstrations. Using a new tactic, workplace occupations, 35 Renault workers sat down inside their factory on May 28th. 
This soon spread to other major factories, with nearly 100,000 workers out. The first week of June saw the strikes and occupations movement sweep France. First the more organized sector, the factories, buildings, printing, and transport, then the traditionally weaker sectors, shoe factories, sugar refineries, and so on, retail clerks struck, as did the newspaper sellers. Two million workers were on strike at the walkout's height. It took employer concessions with the Matigyo Agreement to get workers back on the job. Sadly, the victory was short-lived, with internal divisions over how to deal with the economy and the Spanish Civil War restraining further reforms. The moderate radical party took over in 1938 and 1940, Germans invaded, and the Vichy collaborationists took power. But the general strike taught the French working class the need for cooperation to beat fascism and shape the post-war nation. And that is our story for today. For the Passes and Past, I'm Harry Richardson. now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WRT. Why do we love dating shows, and how have they changed over the years? This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen discusses two reality dating shows, The Bachelor and Love is Blind. Reality TV is entertaining, but reality dating shows are even more popular. The concept of dating shows are not new, but somehow TV producers are able to come up with new ways to bring couples together. From The Bachelor franchise to Love is Blind, Reality dating shows seems to be guaranteed rating success. Even with its somewhat ridiculous premises, the audience can't stop watching all the drama unfold on screen. But why are we so attracted to these dating shows? Moreover, how have these dating shows evolved over the years? This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. The main appeal of reality TV is that these shows have minimal scripting and follow quote-unquote real people. Every single person on the show is portraying themselves. These people are not celebrities who are so out of reach, but normal people like us. As audiences, we often find ourselves relating to some of the characters on screen. Add in the element of love and the plot becomes a lot more complicated and exciting. The Bachelor franchise has been one of the most popular dating shows since it started 20 years ago. Each season, they bring on one Bachelor and have different women compete against each other to win the heart of The Bachelor. The winner of the show will be engaged to The Bachelor at the end. The franchise later came out with The Bachelorette, 
switching up the gender roles, and Bachelor in Paradise, where the contestants who didn't win all come back together to find love amongst one another. In a Washington Post interview, host of Two Black Girls, One Rose, Natasha Scott, shares why she loved the show despite it being a messy drama. Scott says, quote, We would be lying if we didn't tell ourselves that watching these shows affect us in how we think about dating. End quote. She later points out that seeing how some contestants were treated resonated with her and makes her think about her own relationships. However, The Bachelor has been under criticism for many issues in recent years, especially with the rise of many other popular dating shows. For one, people have started to find the concept of multiple women or men pining over one person rather toxic and unrealistic. On top of that, the franchise had exclusively featured white people and had only cast their first black bachelor after fans pressured them to do so. What's more, the show's host, Chris Harrison, defended a contestant's racist behaviors during a TV interview and has since stepped down from the role. The bachelor is definitely facing some troubles, and the influx of new dating shows might show them just what they're doing wrong. Love is Blind is one of the most popular dating shows on Netflix right now. The show is conducting one big experiment to see if love is truly blind. The contestants enter these rooms called the pods to talk to one another, but they can't see each other at all. They all get to talk to each other, and if a pairing forms a connection, they can get engaged and see each other. The engaged couples then go on honeymoons together and spend weeks together before they walk down the aisle. On decision day, they can confirm whether or not they would like to marry that person. In comparison to The Bachelor, Love is Blind has a more diverse casting, including people of color and people of different body sizes. Moreover, the show's purpose is to promote finding genuine connections through conversations without seeing each other's appearance and allowing the contestants equal opportunities to build relationships with one another. While the show does have similar dramatic elements as other dating shows do, viewers find Love is Blind a lot more realistic. With the times evolving, it's crucial that these dating shows have to evolve with the times as well. Reality TV's main appeal is its authenticity and relativity to real life. And thus, the show content needs to be able to balance out its dramatic and realistic elements in order to keep viewers engaged. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. Today on the Monday Movie Review, Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. One, a great documentary on the early Rolling Stone writer and editor Ben Fong-Torres, and the not-so-fun Chippendale Rescue Rangers. I kind of gravitated to people who were in some ways marginalized. Having come from my background helped to direct subjects and the way stories were done. That was a clip from the trailer for the entertaining documentary Like a Rolling Stone. The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres, written, directed, and produced by Suzanne Jo Kai. This is a well-done story of Fong Torres, early music writer-editor for the Rolling Stone magazine. He was with the magazine from close to the beginning in 1967 in San Francisco during the Summer of Love as the founder of the rock and roll magazine, Jan Wenner helpfully points out. An Oakland native, Fong Torres, was one of the few people in the young crew with actual journalism experience. He also had a profound, almost obsessive knowledge and love of rock and roll. He was an emphatic, down-to-earth interviewer who got the job done. 
while people like Hunter S. Thompson made headlines and was a pain to deal with. Fong Torres, from the description here, was a boss's dream, a hard-working straight man who didn't use drugs. He worked well with others, like early stone cover artist Annie Leibowitz, who later became famous for taking pictures of famous people. The documentary features several writers, including several women, who credited him with helping to encourage their early work. Fong Torres's interviewing skills were on display through old cassette recordings. He uncovered Ray Charles's sense of struggle. He noted Charles's description of Elvis. Elvis learned to move like that on Beale Street in Memphis. He learned that from black people. We couldn't move like that on stage, but he could because he was a white kid. There was also a revealing interview with Marvin Gaye about the making of his era setting album, What's Going On. There are also some fun scenes when the laid-back Fong Torres admits he was a big Beatles fan. When he interviewed George Harrison, he was calm on the outside, but on the inside he was going, Oh my God, I'm interviewing George Harrison. The most interesting aspects of the film, though, were those that told about Fong Torres' personal story. Growing up first-generation Chinese-American in Oakland, and a brief disastrous period in Texas where he saw firsthand the experiences of African Americans in the Jim Crow South. His parallel work on a Chinese community newspaper while he was working days at the Rolling Stone, the loss of his brother and his role in his family and community would have been noteworthy and important if he had never heard of the Rolling Stone. Now for something on a lighter note, something aimed at 90s nostalgia. I was always more of an Alvin and the Chipmunks person. You monster. That was a clip from the trailer for Chip and Dale, Rescue Rangers, directed by Akiva Schaefer. It was written by Dan Greger and Deg Mant. The movie starts with a fun premise, but sadly doesn't pull it off. For the uninitiated Chip and Dale, Rescue Rangers had a brief 90s run, and no one was asking for a reboot. But that is supposed to be part of the joke, especially for millennials. The movie takes the idea of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 1988, which itself might almost qualify as millennials' nostalgia and is a much better film. Anyway, Rabbit's conceit was a world where the toons, short for cartoon characters, coexist in a world with real people. There's a cop and crime theme in both, but there the comparison ends. Rabbit combined cutting-edge technology to make it look like the toons and live-action characters were interacting, with a fun retro story that had an almost 40s feel. Chippendale Rescue Rangers, on the other hand, attempts to resurrect old characters and reuse them for supposedly funny, ironic, or nostalgic purposes. The story is a time-worn one. Old buddies have a falling out, and then years later, a sudden emergency forces them back together. In this case, Chip, voiced by John Mullaney, and Dale, voiced by Jan Sandberg, are longtime friends. They have finally achieved their lifelong goal, their own TV show, but then Dale, tired of being second banana, accepts a solo starring show. Rescue Rangers ends, and Chip's new show fails. Years pass, and Chip is working the nostalgia circuit, and Dale is an insurance salesman, when an unexpected toon-napping of an old friend brings them together. The film's preview was fun, and it got a pretty good ranking on Rotten Tomatoes, 79% critics and 83% audience, but just didn't do it for me. Sadly, I can't recommend it. I'm tempted to rewatch Who Framed Roger Rabbit, though. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter was Reed Kamai. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, 
Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show, Heron Splinter produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Paul Herman. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. government, quote-unquote.